0: And so some of you remember that about uh, nine years ago, 17 years ago, uh, Drew Sodestam joined our staff. It was just he and Jen at the time. And uh, nine years ago, we sent uh, Drew and Jen and their two boys, Braden and Carson, up to Sacramento to to plant a church. And uh, I think most of you know there's a, a thriving church up there. Well, what's cool is Drew and I have always had, I would call it a close relationship since we worked together. But what we've been doing, uh, we've tried to share with you in the last year or so, is continuing to build a relationship with 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 Finage Grace, believing there's benefit for us and hanging with these guys. And uh, we just had a retreat. Our entire pastoral staff, with Drew and Jen, Jen's a part of their pastoral team, and two other staff members, and just had a great time being encouraged in what it means to help people experience the love of Jesus and. And uh, share that with, with with other folks. So, so many of you know Drew. For those who don't, he is he and Jen are a part of our church family. That's what what, what we consider him. And so he'll be opening up the word today. And it's a privilege to have them with us. Privilege to have you with us, Drew.
1: Distraction kind of a crazy thing. <laughs> like we can sit and kind of laugh at this little mouse. And, but the reality is how often do you and I get distracted by just one more piece of cheese, right? <laughs> I just need that one more thing that's going to make me happy. And so we gather today on some level because we're convinced that Jesus makes us happy, amen. Yes. That we believe that there's more joy in him than anyone or anything else in this world. And I, I often wonder what makes Jesus happy. I think this morning, this makes Jesus happy. Us getting together, on some level, us being ready to die to meet our Jesus face-to-face. In fact, it's very clear in, in Luke chapter 15 what makes Jesus happy, when the lost sheep gets what? Found. When the lost coin gets found. When the lost brothers get found. That's what makes Jesus happy. And I'm just afraid that sometimes you and I, maybe not you, maybe it's just a me thing. But that we get distracted from what brings God glory and what actually makes us happy. Jesus is so clear what his mission is in Luke chapter 19. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And, and then he calls us as his disciples to follow him. And I think sometimes we think, well, we as a church, we have a mission that we're going to go on. Here's the reality. Jesus has a mission and then he created the church to fulfill the mission. Amen. Like, that's the truth of the matter. And so the mission is simply this. The mission is the gospel. I like drawing lots of pictures, and I'm an incredible artist. And if you know who I am, you know how not true that is. And so you can ask the staff, did Drew draw pictures this week? And the answer was yes, and they're terrible. But when we think about the gospel, the good news, this is the image we'll often draw. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he designed us. And so that's what this line over here stands for, that we were created that From that point on, God created us and he came to us. He visited us in the garden. I often use this stool as a metaphor for the throne of our heart. That in the garden, he sits on the throne of our hearts. And in the beginning, in the garden, life was what? Anybody remember the word there? Good. Life was good. We were finding joy in Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one. But again, it was only good for a couple chapters, right? Because then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, what did they do they do? They not got off the throne of their hearts. That's what sin is. And so you go from God meeting with us in the garden, and the X stands for this sin, that again, we rejected the Father, we rejected the Son, we rejected the Spirit, that life was no longer good because we were cast out of his presence. And so from that point on, we had a serious problem. We called it sin. And so the cross, we call that the gospel. We call that the good news. Why? Because we were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive in Christ. And what does that make us, church? Happy. We were dead, but God makes us alive, and that makes us happy. Four of us. I'll take it. (laughs) Happy. We were dead, but God makes us alive. And so now as the church, we're at this next arrow. We're on what I would call this joy-filled journey with Jesus. One of the most significant images on this picture of the gospel is the arrow this way. That never ends. Everyone in my life, pre-cross and post-cross, everyone in my life just wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today. Have you noticed that? What makes us Christians? We believe Jesus makes us happy, amen? And so that's this journey that we're on. And so we gather today as the church, as sinners saved by grace, as saints who still struggle with sin. Anybody struggle with sin or just me? We have this mentality of the one-cheek faith. We wanna share the throne of our heart with Jesus and he loves us enough to tap us on the shoulder and say, you're in my seat. Now when Jesus saves us, from my sin, from my separation from the Father. When he saves us, he does something instantaneously to us. He saves us to send us. He saves us to send us on what I would call this joy-filled journey. One of the great lies of Satan is you have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a half-truth. Have you noticed Satan always works in half-truths? You have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you have a corporate one. You have a family one. And so he saves us and he sends us together on this joy-filled journey to be disciples. How do you guys define disciples at RCC? What's a disciple, Johnny Burns? Our Someone who lives R cube. Here's how we describe a disciple at Vintage Grace. Someone who lives R cube. does it look familiar? I told you I'm an incredible artist. It's not R1 or R2 or R3. it's the three great relationships deepening with God life-changing with other family of believers, and then engaging with the yet-to-believe. But here's my fear. Way too often in the church, we live our one and we live our two, but we don't actually live our three. And that's a problem because Jesus sends us. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. And the Spirit does what? He sends us. Sealed by the Spirit, sent by the Spirit. And so today I want to focus on hitting the mark Because here's my fear, the mission of Jesus was to seek and to save the lost, and he saved you to join his mission, which means our mission is to what? To seek and to save the lost. Here's the problem, I can't save anybody. I can't save myself, I can't save you, I can't save my neighbor. And so there's something in the text for us today, because my fear is in the church, we often get distracted by the cheese. We have to get distracted by the things that we think will make us happy. And I'm just confident the only thing that will make you happy is if you're living as a disciple pursuing the person of God and the mission of God. I think, unfortunately, the Church of America, we've made the mission of God a one-hour activity that we come and watch and we call it church. Father, forgive me and forgive us because it's not biblical. Barna just said church leaders, conversely, have said this, only 1% of church leaders today say that the churches are doing a very good job at discipling new and young believers. Well, that's a problem because our goal in the church is to what? He said, here's the mission, Matthew 28. I preached this sermon back in May. You've already forgotten it. So let me remind you what Jesus said. Here's the mission. Go into all the world and make, there's the target. That's what we're after. That's Jesus' mission And the result of us faithfully following on the mission, if we would focus, is actually our joy and their good, and I would call it kingdom movement. As a church, we believe that we are supposed to be a part of a battleship. My fear in the Church of America, we've got a bunch of cruise ships floating around. What do you want? Let me serve you. The church came to serve, not to be served. And so that's the call of Jesus for you and me today. The church operates like a battleship where every believer is called to recognize their role and live on mission for Christ. And so we as the church get to carry out this mission by being disciples who make disciples. And we're going to devote ourselves to those three key relationships that we call a disciple, our cube. And when each of these relationships is lived out, we grow as disciples and we make disciples, E1, H1. There's not a new disease, I promise. We use a lot of acronyms as a church. Everyone has one. And so that—that's the, the call. Do you have one that you're inviting on this journey with you? If it's a joy-filled journey, then if we love the people around us, we want them to experience the joy of Jesus. So, if your Bibles turn with me to Luke chapter 10, what we're going to see is that weekly we gather in order to be scattered to live as sent ones. And as we scatter, we are united in Christ, R1. As a communitas, R2 that lives on mission, R3 in our pray watch community, so that the gospel may flow through us to reach the yet to believe with the gospel, with the joy of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 10 with me. We're going to just start in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them to go ahead of him, two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves Carry no money pack, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter into first, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. He remained in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provided, for the labor deserves his wages do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will wipe it off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And so I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than even for that town. Jesus, would you speak to us? As we look at your word, as we look at your mission, as we look at your kingdom that you've invited us to be a part of, would we see what it means for our reality to faithfully follow you, to be sent by you? My prayer spirit is that it would be hard for anyone in your Belinda to go to hell because they've met people from RCC and they see Jesus in them. So the joy of Jesus penetrate our head and our hearts and our hands today. And would you be glorified through your word and through the gathering of your saints, we pray. And everybody said Amen. As we look at the text, we're just going to walk verse by verse. 10-1, after this the Lord did something. The problem with coming as a guest preacher is that, is that I, you can read the context and miss the whole text. So Luke 10 says after this, which means we actually have to go backwards to chapter 9. If you have your Bibles turn back, I'm just going to look at the titles of chapter 9. Which again was not from Luke, but the ESV translators put this in here. He sends out the 12 at the beginning of chapter 9. Herod's super confused by Jesus. Jesus feeds the 5000, which I think the title should be. He disciples the 12, but that's okay. He confesses Jesus is the Christ, Peter does. Jesus foretells his death. He gives this great sales pitch in Luke 9. And then they have the transfiguration. He heals a boy. He foretells his death again. The disciples miss it cuz that's what we do really well as disciples. They argue about who's the greatest. Anyone who is not against us is actually for us. They're not slowing us down. Let's storm the gates of hell, Jesus says. The Samaritan village rejects Jesus. He gives another call to discipleship, and that's the cost. So he's been training. That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been inviting people on this joy-filled journey with him, and he's training them. Every moment is a spiritual moment, teaching about the kingdom of God. And so what we see now in verse 1 is after this, all of this ministry, he appoints the 72 to go. Now, how many disciples were there? 12, 11, 12, something like that. And so what we see here is that the mission of God was not just for the the elite, which, by the way, none of the disciples were elite. But the mission of God is beyond what the professional people can do. I think that's an important takeaway for us. The mission of God to seek and save the lost, to actually storm the gates of hell so that it would be hard for anyone to go to hell in our neighborhood, that's beyond what the 12 could do. There's this multiplication in the text today. There's 72 people now. 72 people that are being sent by Jesus for the mission of Jesus. I think the 72 matters. Go read Genesis chapter 10 or Genesis as you see the 70 different nations. They go out as two by two. He said, two by two, I'm going to send you in every town where he himself was about to go. I think the two by two is a reference all the way back to Deuteronomy 17 and 19. He sends them two by two, but he also says... You're going to go, but here's the reality, I am going to go. Two by two in every town into the place where he, Jesus, was about to go. Please understand this, I can't save anybody, you can't save anybody. Here's the good news, Jesus is coming. Pretty regular. I'm a pretty incompetent person, amen. I mean, I set you up, Jen, like that was a softball. (laughs) My wife's here, not always. My dad, I remember as a young kid, said, hey, Drew, come work on the car with me. And you're like, that's a mistake. My dad didn't need me, he invited me. He gave me an opportunity to be a part of what he was doing and that's what we see in the text here. Jesus is gonna go to the villages, he's gonna go to the towns, he goes before us but he gives us this unique role. He himself was about to go and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are what church? Few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. Now have you ever heard me talk about a 938 prayer alarm? I preached here three times this year all three times I've talked about it. Here's my question. Have you set your alarms? Because they're going to go off in like two minutes. So silent those if you could. I love first service at church. The alarms go off. Why do the alarms go off? Because they remind us of the mission. What does Jesus say? You can't save people. What can you do, church? You can pray. You can pray to the Lord of the harvest who can save people. And so as a church, we set our alarms for 938. By we, I mean RCC. Right? We set our alarms. Why? Because that's the work. We pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus, you're doing something. Would you send kingdom laborers into your harvest? And then what does Jesus do? Then he sends kingdom laborers. He says, don't just pray about it. Now go do something about it. Go your way. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now pay attention as we read the text. There's a posture of this journey and an opposition of this journey. Like when I was a young man, I still am a young man, but when I was a young boy, If I was picking an action figure to storm the gates of hell, you know what I never would have picked? A lamb. There's a posture to the way in which we go to people. With humility, with grace. Lamb's strengths only come from the shepherd. Pay attention to the posture that he sends us with. Because I do think our call is to storm the gates of hell, but pay attention to our posture. I am sending you out as lambs, humble, gracious, meek, calm, led by the good shepherd. And who is he sending us to? I'm sending you out as lambs to the yet-to-believe world in the midst of wolves. You know what wolves mean? Danger. It means trouble. It means that there's this reality that's coming. And so he just said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that you wouldn't be distracted by the mission, that cheese wouldn't distract you. But he also says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, I think that the cat in the image doesn't distract you either, right? Right? Because as the mouse is guiding the cheese, there's two main issues. What are they? The cheese that are distracting him and the enemy. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite letters. He writes to the church, he says there's three enemies in the world. The prince of this world, the enemy that seeks to kill and destroy. The world itself. And who's the third enemy? Anybody remember? Me. My flesh, my desire for one-cheek faith, my desire to knock God off the throne of my heart. There's three enemies and so here's what Jesus tells them. I'm sending you out as lambs, but you're going to go into a world that's going to seek to kill and destroy you. Luke 9, we just looked at that briefly. Don't you love Jesus' sales pitch to his disciples? Hey, come be on my team. Let's storm the gates of hell. You're going to go as a lamb and people are going to want to kill you. Don't you love that? Like no wonder why he only had 12 disciples. I could have helped him with the sales pitch. He makes it very clear that the cost is high. The cost of following me is going to cost you your life. He never promised disciples that it would be easy to follow me. What did he promise the disciples? That it would be worth it. That there would be more joy in Jesus than anything else this world has to offer. And so he tells the disciples, I'm going to send you out as lambs. You're going to go out into the world with wolves It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And the good shepherd goes before you and he comes after you. That victory is assured and that we can live and lead in light of that. And so then it's like, okay, well, if you're going to send me out, you're the good shepherd, then you're going to send me fully equipped to deal with wolves, right? Like I can't help but read this text and like think about MacGyver. Anybody remember MacGyver? Like where's my tube sock and my paper clip and give me this sick fanny pack that I'm going to wear, right? Here's what the text says. Carry no money bag and no MacGyver knapsack. Well, crap. Can I say that? It's all good. It's all good. He said, Don't bring an extra pair of sandals. You don't need them. You don't need anything on this mission. What do you need? Me. I'm going to provide for you. The journey is marked by prayer. That was the first thing we said, pray, the Lord of the harvest. And then the journey is marked by what? Provision. Provision's going to come in ways you don't expect. It's going to come from my people, it's going to come from me. You have to trust me. Here's the problem. Anyone here struggle trusting Jesus or just me? It's a problem. My lack of faith is real. So Jesus is sending his disciples, he's equipping them. He says, May the journey be marked by prayer, may it be marked by provision, may there be missional clarity. By clarity, he says this as you go, greet no one on the road. Why? Because my mission for you is not the road, it's the village. I think we get distracted by all sorts of things. We get distracted by the enemy and the cat, we get distracted by the cheese. And you're like, wait, Jesus, don't you want me to talk to people? He says, yes, I've ordained people to meet you in the village. If you talk on the road, you're going to miss the village. You're not going to have the missional clarity. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 60, he says, let the dead bury the dead. You focus on the mission of God. Do not get distracted because we do that so easily and so often. Regularly for them, they would get stopped on the road and they would talk for days at a time. I don't know how that works. I'm a destination guy. Like I'm the guy that my kid says he's got to pee, and I'm like, here's a water bottle, bro. <laughs> Life short, hell's hot, we got to go. Jesus sends us. And so I say it in jest, but church, are we getting distracted from the mission of God? And again, for me, being distracted from the mission of God is not things like cancer, it's things like comfort. When cancer happens, there's a clarity to the mission of God. When comfort happens, there's a distraction from the mission of God. And we'd all say amen, but here's the problem. We live in this place called the land of. I hope we're paying attention. The mission is clear. The distractions are high. And it's not cancer that takes us away from the mission. It's often comfort. It's often the warriors and the giants and the 49ers. It's things that just don't matter. That's what it is. Verse 5 goes on and says this, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, then your peace will return to him. But if not, it will return to you. Regular in the early church, especially in the first century, disciples would meet other people and they would draw a fish, just half. And they would step back and they would see if the person they met would draw the other half of the fish. Hey, are we in this mission together? Are we in this same journey? Are we distracted by cheese? Are get distracted by the cat? Or are we all about the lordship of Christ? That's what we see in Luke here. As you give peace, Jen and I as a cancer family, all the sons had cancer twice, bone marrow transplant. We'd often hang out with other cancer families and we would speak a language that no one else would understand. We'd say things like, hey, what's your boy's A and C? What are his platelets at? The average person's like, what are they talking about? Church, we have a language of this joy in Jesus that the world doesn't understand. I'm not saying that we try to speak in code, but they just don't get it because they're dead in their sin and they've not been raised to life in Christ. He's saying, look for people of peace. Maybe they're pre-believers that are coming to faith. Maybe they're the believers that you're meeting in the village. And if it's someone of a person of peace, remain in the house, eat and drink with them. Eating was a huge sign of covenant in the early church. When you ate a meal with someone, this is significant because it's also what got Jesus in trouble. Remember, you hang out with sinners. What that means is you eat with people that are unclean. Jesus always pursued the sinner. He ate with them. He just told them to go sin no more. But he said, I wanna pursue you. I wanna love you. Why? Because we are sheep without a shepherd. Remain in the house, eat and drink, whatever they provide, for the labor deserves his wages. Don't keep going. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Pay attention. Every action has a follow up. So as you sit into a house and you eat with them, you build relationship, you build covenant. They give you food, you receive it, and you eat it. Give them the gospel. Heal them. What you see right in the gospel of Luke is that Jesus did these miracles over and over and over again. But every time after the miracle, there was a message of the kingdom. Why? The miracle led to the message. That's what mattered most. What mattered most is that the kingdom of God was here. How do you know it's a person of peace? They answer the door. You ever try to like have a conversation with someone when the door shut? It doesn't work. How do you know it's a person of peace? They invite you in. They give you food. One of our values as a church is we don't answer questions for people that they're not asking. I've just tried way too hard in my life to preach at people that don't care about the gospel. It's just not very effective. But if it's a person of peace, they invite you in, they give you food, we have conversations, and we get to do that. And here's what Jesus says, pay attention, the missional clarity is it's all about the kingdom of God. If they accept the word, do the deed of healing. But what if they don't invite you in? What if they reject you? Because as we're sent ones, here's my prayer for you. You set your alarm for 938, which means you're praying and you're watching for opportunities in the kingdom all throughout your day. But as that happens, you're wrestling with it. Is this a moment for kingdom conversation? Or am I just going to stay present and love this person as they are where they are? No big deal. Because I don't save them anyways. I don't have to shove the gospel down their throat. I just need to be in relationship with them so that when the door opens, we can share a meal. So what happens when they reject? Well, Jesus tells us. He goes on. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust in your town that clings to our feet, we wipe them off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So, actually, the message is the same either way. Did you see that? If you don't see it, I put it in yellow. The acceptance and the rejection, our response is the same. We don't save people, we don't have to deliver a beautiful gospel. We just have to tell our story. We were dead, but God made us alive, and that makes us happy. And yes, we struggle with one cheek faith, and they'll laugh at you, and it's okay, because it's not about you, it's about Him. Now, as I read these words, I wonder how you read them. Do you think the disciples are angry here? Do you think when they get rejected, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that town of, of than for the town that they're in? Because I read that, especially as a young Christian, I read them and be like, "Yep, yeah, that's right, you rejected Jesus. What do the disciples do in chapter 9? Anybody remember when the Samaritan village rejects Jesus? What do James and John say? Anybody remember? Jesus, you want me to like blow them up and call fire down from heaven? And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. One of my fears for the church of America is that we have been fighting with the world and not fighting for her. What does Jesus love? For God so loves the world. Anyone else need to repent for the last few years that we fight with the world instead of for her? And so pay attention. I think I read this text and I'm like, man, Jesus, we got this. They rejected you. Let's get rid of them. Jesus is like, wait, wait, wait. I came for them? I mean, how many times did Jesus tell his disciples, get behind me, Satan? We know a couple, but I think it might have happened a lot. Because the disciples are in process. How good is our God that he's gracious to us who have been in process. Amen? that he's patient to love and to rebuke, that he loves us enough to tap us on the shoulder and say, Drew, you're in my seat. And so please hear me as we look at the text, I think the call of Jesus to be heartbroken for the world, not to cast down fire on her. He's going to keep pursuing her until they fully reject, until death do them part. That we're heartbroken as saints because we love what God loves and God is the Lord of the harvest and he loves the harvest and we fight for the harvest. And so please hear me, we use this language. Our theology must match our tone and our timing. Our theology is that God is good all the time and what? Oh, shoot, I forget. I think vintage and RCC are the same, so I forget only a couple of you have been to vintage. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Which means when life is hard, we get to preach a gospel of God is with you, and he loves you, and he's for you. And so that theology must match the tone and the timing. We never preach a gospel of damnation. Is damnation apart from Christ real? Yes. It's why we're urgent to share the gospel. Amen? That's the call of Christ. And the text goes on. In verses 13 through 16, there's this example of Capernaum. Like Jesus' home base of ministry, they missed it. And so Jesus is just encouraging them, hey guys, pay attention, verse 16, the one who hears you actually hears me, the one who rejects you actually rejects me, and the one who rejects me actually rejects the father who sent me. This isn't about you, this is about my father who's in heaven that is pursuing the world that he loves, that rejected him, and him calling the world back, that is the mission of God, to seek and to save the lost. And then we get to verse 17, I love verse 17, the 72 returned, they came home. Sunday mornings for me are like a family reunion. And that's true when you've been gone for seven years. I I was here in May, so I've only gone for a couple of months. But there's this family reunion. There's like, man, what's going on? On Sundays, we do four things at our church every Sunday, and we do them pretty typically here at RCC as well. We sing songs of God's goodness, we tell stories of His grace, we have a sermon of His glory, and then we send you to be the living proof of a loving God. We send you to be everyday missionaries. We send you, why do we send you? Jesus already sent you. We're just trying to catch up to what he's already doing. He sends you. Who does he send? Anyone that follows him. So if you follow Jesus today, you are a sent one. And when we come back on a Sunday morning, it's like this family reunion. Hey, how'd your week go? How'd it go as you went out and shared the gospel? Did you get a door slammed in your face? That's tough. God's good all the time. Don't forget that. Well, you got cancer this week. There's this reunion feel. Life is hard. There's wolves. There's an enemy. There's a flesh. There's a world that's seeking to divide and destroy. And so Sunday is this sacred sanctuary for saints. Where we go vertical. Is that what it is here at RCC or just at Vintage? It's the sanctuary of saints that we go vertical together. We lick each other's wounds. We share stories of success and of failure. And we remember that it's God's mission and our job just to faithfully follow. Just to proclaim. Again, how'd the week go? The teacher comes back and shares, here's some hardships in my class. The dentist comes back and he says, man, I tried to share the gospel. Dentists are the worst, by the way. I love you, dentist people. But as evangelists and as disciple makers at our church, I tease our dentists all the time because they share the gospel and your mouth is open. They're like, how's it going? You're like, I can't even respond to you. It's a captive audience. Airplane, how'd the airplane trip go, you businessman? Did you sit down on the airplane? Because I've been traveling all week. You know, do you sit down and they put their AirPods in, that's that universal, don't talk to me? Which is okay, I don't need to talk to you. I'm just gonna pray to the Lord of the harvest for you because that's the work. So regularly I look for opportunities to engage on airplanes, but now with these darn AirPods, no one gives them to me. So I just pray a lot on airplanes. I say, Lord, you're the Lord of the harvest. Would you do a kingdom work and would you raise up kingdom labors and this guy that I don't even know next to me, would you do a work in his heart to bring him from death to life, amen. Amen. I pray that prayer over and over and over again. And then on Sundays, I get back together with my church family, and we return in what? In joy. Here's what we say. Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. Jesus is like, I know. It's pretty awesome. And I've given you that power. I've given you that authority to go out in the name of Jesus and to call people who were dead to life again to introduce them to me. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And they said to he, Jesus said to them, I know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Church, who's he saying that about? Now we're confused. I think it's them. It was written for them but I think it applies to us. Those of us who trust and treasure Jesus, we have been saved, we have been sealed, we have been baptized by the spirit, and now we are sent by the spirit to introduce people to Jesus. Nothing can hurt you. So death for for Patty, is that right? For for your mom. Death is this beautiful moment. Jim, thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you for not, because we just get distracted by cheese and by the cat. We get distracted by what matters most. Guys, the only thing that Satan has on you is that if you die, you're apart from Jesus. But if you're in Christ, if you die, what? You're with Jesus. There is nothing better. Nothing better. That's what we mean by more joy in Jesus. The 72, they return in joy and they say these things, nevertheless, do not rejoice in the power that you have, Jesus says. Do not rejoice in that. Instead, rejoice in the names that are written in heaven. You are a son or daughter of the king. Death cannot touch you, and the grave did not hold him, and it will not stop you from getting to him. You are a son or a daughter. That's our calling. We talk a lot in the Church of America about being blessed, and it just breaks my heart. Because we hear things like, oh, I just I want to be hashtag blessed. I got the promotion, hashtag blessed. The girl said yes when I asked her on a date, hashtag blessed. For you, not for her. Right? Like... Hashtag blessed means the white picket fence. It means the six-figure income, 100K, which with inflation, now it needs to be 200K, right? Hashtag blessed is two and a half kids because America can't decide, is it two or three that's the perfect number? I don't know. That's not hashtag blessed. What is blessed according to the word of God? That you are called a son or a daughter of the king. That's what it means to be blessed. Blessed people die and they get happy because they get Jesus. That's the message we had to offer to the world that's looking for joy in all the wrong places. If they just would meet my Jesus, they'd be happy. And so we share the gospel, we proclaim, and people slam the door in our face, but some people listen, some people open, and some people engage, and some people come to faith. And that's why Satan falls from the sky. He falls from the sky because God wins. Verse 21, that same hour, he rejoiced. What makes Jesus happy? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He says this, I thank you, Father. You see the Trinity working together, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid in these things from the wise and the understanding, and you revealed them to little children, the knuckleheads of the disciples and the the reality of who we are at Vintage and at RCC. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal. And then he says the word blessed, but in the biblical context. Then turn to the disciples, he said to them privately after talking to the father, he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, but they didn't get to see it. To hear what you hear and they didn't get to hear it. First Peter says it this way, the angels long to look down on what God's doing at RCC and be like, that's amazing. The angels are with Jesus. Is that pretty amazing? Yeah. But the angels long look down and say, but God's will be done in your Belinda as it is in heaven. But Jesus is storming the gates of hell through the 72 saints that he sends out with his provision, with his presence, with his promptings to go be the living proof of a loving God. There's nothing better than this. And I'm still just afraid in the Church of America we've said these things like invite your friends to church, which is a good thing because I like church because it's a reunion of dead men walking. It's a unique community that nothing else in this world can touch. I love Sundays, but you do realize Sunday is 0.7% of the week, except for when I preach, it's 0.75% of the week. That's it. Sunday is a gathering of saints and then a scattering of the saints to go be missionaries. That's what we see in the text. It's a gathering of sent ones. And I just want this for you because nothing is better than being used by God. I don't save people, but I've had the opportunity to watch him save people where you're like literally seeing the Holy Spirit enter their lives. My buddy Bryce, stage four cancer, I sat with him every month, almost weekly for the last 16 months, nothing's better than knowing that if Jesus lets the cancer win, the cancer doesn't ever win, God wins. But he's ready to meet Jesus someday. Nothing's better than that guys. Cancer will never win. The wolves will never win and that's a reference to the NBA as well. Nothing is better than this, and it's what we as pastors at RCC want for you is to be the sent ones, not because we're sending you, but because he already has. He sent you to your neighborhood. He sent you to your job. He sent you to your soccer field. He sends you to your coffee shop, and he says, there's people out there. Would you pray to the Lord of the harvest that you would be used by him for his glory and for their good? And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to close with what are the implications? One of our passions as a church that comes straight from RCC is that we love the Word of God. We preach the Word of God and we walk through the Word of God verse by verse. But my fear is there can be a tendency to overteach and underreach. So every sermon we close the last few minutes with this thing that we call implications. I translate implications as so what. Because if we leave Sunday and go, well, that was fun, this like obese man was sweating on stage and he yelled at us and yeah someone just told me they just said hey um, it's glad, i'm glad right here at church i'm glad to see you're following todd's leadership i'm like what do you mean <laughs> but what's the so what are we doing anything about the word the work of god the word does not return void and the word of god is living and active and sharpening a double-edged sword and that's through you as you go so I've got three implications for you, church. Here's the first one: prayer is the work. Would you pull out your phones? I think that was my mistake the last two times. I didn't make you pull out your phones. Would you go to your alarms and would you set an alarm for 9:38? Did you notice that that's the verse from Matthew? It's also here in Luke. So if you've, if 9:38's a rough time, go to Luke 10, 2, chapter 10, verse 2. <laughs> Pray to the Lord of the harvest. My hope and desires I prayed for you guys all week, is that it would be hard for anyone at Esperanza High School to go to hell because there's teachers living on mission and there's students who are sent ones. My prayer for your neighborhood is that they would see the joy of Jesus in you because you're the one that's sent out as a lamb in the midst of wolves. So set your alarm for 938. My favorite part of church at first service at Vintage is that people forget you can set your alarm for like Monday through Saturday. You can turn it off on Sunday just for what it's worth. Mine's on mute on Sundays. And it goes off. It goes off in staff meetings. It goes off when I'm with my people that I'm sent to. And it reminds me to not get distracted by the cheese, not get distracted by the cat, but stay focused on the mission. And so church, could we just commit this fall to become praying people? That's an ask. I see a couple of head nods. Would you just raise your hand and say, Drew, I'll pray to the Lord of the harvest this fall. Just raise your hand. Now you have to set your alarm because you're going to (laughs) forget. But what would it be like if we as a church just started to become people that prayed to the Lord of the harvest, that watched for opportunities, and that took the steps as he opened the doors and people invited us in to eat? I'm telling you guys, it would change your neighborhood. It would change your family. It would change your schools. And it would storm the gates of hell in this place that we call the land of gracious living, that apart from Jesus, it's not very gracious. Second implication. And the third, I put them together. Our faithfulness matters. In God's sovereignty, he's invited us to work on the car. <laughs> he doesn't need us. That's good news because I would jack it up. But by his infinite grace and mercy, he has designed this world to be saved by him and to be using sent ones like you and me. His faithfulness matters most. Don't miss this. But he gives us a call. He calls us sons and daughters. He saves us and he sends us. And so thank you for letting me be a guest. Thank you for letting me be a part of your family it's fun too because I see a bunch of vintage families that have moved to Southern California. Some people moved to California too, right? We are sent ones together as one family. God is constantly working. John Piper says it this way God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now. You know three of them. We get the joy of just discovering what God's already doing. And so today's a fun day, not just to open the word with you, but also to invite some family, my wife, Jen, and Jess, our dear friend up, just to hear part of their story. Just to hear part of, of who God is and what he's been doing. So I'm going to ask Jen and Jess to share. Jess is getting baptized in just a couple of minutes. Baptism for us at RCC is not what saves you. It's a proclamation that you've been saved. Baptism for us as a church is not typically done by the pastor. It's done by the person that's walking, that, that's been the sent one of the 72 that prays and watch and steps. It's a public proclamation of the work that God did, that we go under the water and we come up. It's death to our sin and a life in Christ. And so today I want you to hear the story of Jess. And it's one that we care deeply about, and I pray it encourages your heart as well. Talk to it.
2: 18 years ago, um, I was a high school teacher in a little school, kind of a big school, in Hacienda Heights, and as a new teacher, they were able to force me, I mean, ask me um, to coach soccer. I was forced. I went to college on a softball scholarship. I have no idea what soccer is or why people play it. (laughs) And... Drew and I were invited to be the varsity coaches, but we also had to find JV coaches. And we had just moved there, and I didn't know anyone. And we got her name from another teacher. And I had no idea what setup was happening by God Himself. We started coaching, and We invited her just to become part of our family. I didn't know where she stood with God. I didn't, I didn't ask. I just wanted to be in relationship with her. There was an open door for community and we started coaching. And then we forced her to be our friends, (laughs) right? And so, it has been a privilege to watch you discover Jesus. It has changed my life and my kids' lives and the way you walked us through our cancer journey. And last week, you texted me and told me a story And said when are you coming down and I said Friday (laughs) are you kidding me God I've come down here one time in a year and I happen to be coming down so it is so exciting to be here and so on purpose and so covered in his fingerprints and um, I want them to know your story because You guys need to know you are sent. And you might be forced into coaching soccer, but it's so on purpose. (laughs) And you might meet people who you invite into relationship, and they might open the door and say yes. And you might find yourself here 18 years later getting to baptize them. Gosh. So I want you to hear her story, because you should be encouraged to be sent, and to live on mission for this. Alice.
3: Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I would say it's been a journey. Um, but two weeks ago, on a Monday drive to work, I um, was listening to Brandon Lake and um, what's the name of the song? Uh, now I'm forgetting. Not gratitude. Um, uh, Feels Like Heaven. And um, can't get enough of Jesus. And in that moment when I was in the car worshiping, I just felt a calmness come over my body. And was just um, filled with happiness. I was crying. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and in that moment, I was like, I am going to take a public stand for Jesus. By his grace I have been saved in faith alone. And I was going to call Jen. And we were going to make it happen. Didn't know it was going to happen in a week. (laughs) Um, But wanted to do it here at RCC with my family and my friends. Um, And in that moment while I was in the car, um, was just, again, truly excited, overwhelmed with joy and happiness. And I'm going on my way to work as I am a teacher. And I was picturing in my head as I'm getting there, I'm like... (laughs) All right, I'm gonna do the Todd leap, and I'm gonna be like I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm <laughs> praying for you. I'm praying for you. <laughs> um, and that's just how it was. And then it was work. And I'm a teacher. And I was like, okay, hi, good morning. Oh my goodness, I have a lot going on in my heart right now. Um, came home, shared with Carson, um, who I met through Vintage Grace and Church Plant. Um, so big, first full circle for me today. Um, so yes, so that's, that's my story in the last couple of weeks at least, yes. Isn't this
2: amazing? Guys, this is awesome. Like, you guys know that I'm married to Drew, right? I don't have a wedding ring on. Does it make me any less married to him? No. She's going to go get in the water today. This is not magic. This doesn't save her. But this is her proclamation to you that she is on mission. Join her. I never understood this mission until we planted stake in church. It is so good. It is so hard. And it is so worth it. So today we celebrate and we're going to go get wet. Okay. As they uh